Welcome to this episode of Christian Outdoors Podcast being brought to you by CVA, the leader in muzzleloading and centerfire rifle technologies. I'm your host, Pete Rogers. I'm not one of those big outspoken kind of Christians. I'm I'm kind of a introvert. That's why I like being behind the camera, stuck in a you know dark blind. Uh, I don't like to be in front of the camera. Uh, that's why I was really glad when you said, you know, I wasn't going to be uh, on video. It was just going to mm-hmm. be on audio because uh, I'm kind of a behind the scenes kind of guy, I guess you could say. But what I do is I do friendship evangelism. Turkey season fast approaching. I want to tell you about this great shotgun from CBA. It's the Scout 410. I used this shotgun last year for the first time and was able to take turkeys with it. And I got to tell you, it is a great choice for the, for the running gun turkey hunter. It's sleek, lightweight, easy to operate design, sets a new standard for affordable single-shot shotguns. The Scout 410 stock is lightweight. It includes an adjustable length of pull spacer and features the CVA Crush Zones recoil pad. The model is perfectly balanced and in 100% ambidextrous composite stock makes the gun incredibly quick to aim and shoot. Each shotgun also includes a Duracite scope rail and a Jeb's choke for turkey hunting. Check your local game laws to make sure it's legal in your state. And if it is, you can't go wrong with the CVA 410 Scout Shotgun. This episode of Christian Outdoors Podcast, I'm your host, Pete Rogers. This is episode number 171. We get into this week's interview that I had just uh, a few days ago with the foremost photographer of white-tailed deer and wild turkey in the world. His name is Mr. Lance Kruger. If you've seen Lance Kruger's photography, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Lance is a native of Texas. He's a full-time professional photographer and outdoor writer who travels extensively photographing wildlife, hunting, and fishing scenes throughout North America. Lance's extensive photographic coverage of the white-tailed deer and wild turkeys for over 30 years and includes more states and provinces than any other professional photographer. But this is a fascinating conversation with the world's best wildlife photographer, Lance Kruger, and the conversation was so good and was so uh, energetic with Lance that we decided to break this up into two episodes. We got so detailed into a lot of what his photography is about that, that we just decided it would make a lot more sense to break it up into two episodes. All right, Lance, welcome, welcome back to episode two here at Christian Outdoors Podcast. We had so much going on last week when we were talking with Lance Kruger about, about his wildlife photography. We decided to break this up into two episodes. So, Lance, let's just kind of pick up right, right where we were. And we'll continue on with with episode two. Sounds good. I'm ready. Transition from film to digital. And uh, I don't want to get too technical, but I don't know anybody that shoots film now except the very high, high end, you know, people. Uh, I'm assuming you do digital now. Yes, I do. Okay. Um, okay. Actually, yeah. I started shooting uh, film, you know, when I first got my first camera in 85, 1985. Mm-hmm. And I shot uh, until 2006. Six, um, so that's uh, twenty, however many years that is, uh, yeah. nineteen eighty-five to two thousand, almost twenty years, yeah, yeah. So I shot for twenty-something years with film, and then I was actually one of the late comers to digital because mm-hmm. I was always told that you could scan the the slides in and turn them into digital images, which worked for a while until editors started saying, "We don't want scans of slides; we want digital original shots out of a digital camera." Yeah, 12 oh, megapixels are better and all these details and stuff. Yeah, when I when I started doing it, I, I was really 
studying the magazines and I was seeing that, you know, I, I could t- sense and I would talk to the editors, how much, you know, what's your percentage of digital to, to slides? And they were saying, well, we use about 10% digital. You know, this is like, early, you know, in the early 2000s. Right, right. Um, we're using about 10% uh, digital and about 90% slides. And I was like, okay, well, that's not enough to make me change. Until mm-hmm. in 2006, they started telling me we're using about 50-50. And so that was the number right there that I felt like I need to move over to digital to be a, as far enough ahead of it that I've got a big enough file of digitals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, by the time they're doing 90% digital, I'll have a good enough file by then, which I was hoping would be for a few years later. Right. And so in 2007, that's when I bought my first digital camera, a Canon 30D, uh, camera, which was eight megapixels. Um, it was, you know, not a pro camera. There was the 1D, um, uh, camera, 1D Mark II camera that was an eight megapixel camera, uh, that I used in later years. Uh, but I got it used from a friend of mine for like $300. Uh, and I was just trying to test it. And I had, you know, on that first trip in 2007, the fall of 2007, uh, I had a thousand rolls of, you know, Fuji Chrome slide film with me with all my film cameras planning. If I didn't like this digital thing, I'd just switch over to, to, you know, film. Right. Uh, But I started shooting digital and I fell in love with it so much that I didn't shoot a single frame of that thousand rolls of film. And that's, thousand rolls of film is still sitting in my freezer in my in my house so well that's a chunk of change sitting in there buddy it, it is, it <laughs> is. That's a chunk of change yeah. yeah and and you mentioned the eight megapixel right which is which was my first digital was the canon uh right. i don't remember what t t i three or something like that i don't remember now right because uh, it's been several bodies ago right um but i've always been a canon guy because my dad had a canon a1 35 millimeters so i was like well he used canon i'll use canon so i've right. never even i never even tried nikon or any of the rest of them that's just that's just what i've always done uh and i'm sure they're all good but anyway uh my first one was an eight megapixel and then i went up to 12 and then up to 18 and then my editors were saying if it's 12 i don't care how high above 12 you go we're going to publish it at 12 i'm like so why am i spending all this money for these 18 and 24s if 12 is good enough for the, for the magazines, right? Uh, the I'm not a photographer. I'm just a writer supplying pictures. Right. And right. It's a whole, whole different mentality there. Right. You know, I remember thinking, you know, why do we ever need anything over 12 megapixels? And right. I was a little naive to it. Uh, but when I shot eight megapixel images, you weren't able to crop very much. You pretty much mm-hmm. had to shoot it. You know, however you shot it, that was how it was used. Right. And so with, the higher megapixel cameras and I've moved to the higher megapixel cameras. I've got, you know, cameras that are 24 megapixel and I've got cameras that are 45 megapixel, the Canon R5 nowadays. And the the thing is you're able to crop the photos in a lot more yourself. And then the magazines tend to like to crop it in, even your cropped in photos. So I I had one editor uh, of Buckmasters use one of my photos. It was a horizontal image that, they turned to vertical and then they cropped in on just the head and shoulders of the deer. It wasn't even a quarter of the frame. It was like, Uh, you know, it was like your, your pinky nail in size of the image that they used of a 35 millimeter image. And it, it was unbelievable how good it was. And I shot it at 1600 ISO 
And that's not even the most modern cameras. I mean, right. the cameras right. nowadays can do so much better in low light and yeah. all that. Yeah. So it's the cropability. But with that cropability and those higher megapixels comes the problem of the photos looking noisier, the higher the megapixels, the lower the noisier, you mean a little bit blurry. They're, they're grainier looking like in the old, the old terminology in film was grain. Well, nowadays that same look is called noise and it's basically the color's not as good. And there's like more color. You see the, the color dots more. Right. Right. Then right. you do if everything's real low ISO and everything looks real smooth together. So if you have a higher megapixel camera, then when you crop and zoom onto the image, it it, it has a greater success rate of staying clear. Right. Is that, is that a layman's not term? What ISOs, say it? Yeah, but, yeah. but not at high ISOs. You can crop that 45 megapixels in. Um, a whole lot more, but you, I don't use my high megapixel camera in real low light situations. That's my R5 camera, which is 45 megapixels. I use that when I'm, I don't have to go over like 3,200 or maybe 6,400 ISO. Yeah. Um, and that's why I've got my Canon R3 camera, um, to be able to shoot in lower light. And that's a 24 megapixel camera because with fewer megapixels, the, each pixel is bigger. When they have to jam all those pixels into the same size frame, but they've got to put a whole lot more in it, each mm-hmm. pixel will be smaller. So it gathers less light. Yeah. So that's why you've yeah. got to, you know, increase the ISO and it doesn't handle high ISOs as much with a high megapixel count. That's right. why I've got two cameras. One is my low light camera and my action camera, which is my R3, which is the 24 megapixel camera. And my little bit brighter light camera is my Canon R5. Okay. And so because this has 45 megapixels compared to 24 megapixels. Right. Some people say they don't like the R3 because it doesn't have enough megapixels to crop in. But I I just printed a 40 inch by 60 inch canvas print for one of my clients. And he chose a photo that I shot back in like 2008 with the 1D uh, Mark II camera that was an eight megapixel camera. Really? So I kind of cringed thinking, okay, he already paid for it. He just ordered it online. And I was like, oh, how's this going to look? Well, we went in and they blew it up to 40 by 60 and it looked incredible at eight megapixel. Wow. So, so when cool. you, and I, I'm, I mean, I'm not looking at it from 10 feet away. I'm looking at the face like two feet away from it to see how sharp the face is of the deer. And um, then um, I, you know, have a lot of people say, well, 24 megapixel isn't enough to crop in. And I tell them, okay, I just did this, you know, 40 by 60 print, you know, which is, you know, like three and a half feet by five feet tall. I mean, right. it's and you did it with an eight megapixel with an eight megapixel. I've got now my lowest megapixel camera has three times the amount of megapixels in it. So I can either blow that up to 120 inches by 180 inches and still get the same quality. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's or good you can to know. Crop it in three times. So yeah. people kind of have a misconception of what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I personally don't have a problem with a 24 megapixel camera or even a 20 megapixel camera. That, that one cover that I was telling you about the Buckmasters cropped in from a horizontal mm-hmm. and it was like a, a quarter of the frame or even less. That was a 16 megapixel camera from okay. a 1D Mark IV camera. 
and that was you know you know that's like a 10 year old camera something like that Mm -hmm. and that was cropped into a quarter frame and it still looked incredible on the cover of a magazine yeah 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 i've only sold one cover of all the uh, all the pictures that I turned in, and that's what, it was my son's first turkey with him holding the turkey over his shoulder. He was nine years old, ten years old. So it's a little kid. The kids what sold it. In fact, it was a kid with a turkey. It's what sold it. It wasn't my great right. photography lance. I mean, you know, sometimes <laughs> a lot yeah. of times the subject sells the photo, not the quality of the photo. It does. Correct? If and you, how if how hard it is, right. and how hard it is for them to find what they're looking for. You know, right. to convey that idea of what they're trying to say in the yeah. articles inside. So, yeah. 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 And I have sent in pictures, uh, cause you know, we had to submit pictures with our stories now and I've sent in pictures and said, Hey, I think this would make a great cover photo. And now, nah, 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 you know, and one of my problems, and I'm, I'm saying this for listeners, I think that if I do it, somebody else probably does it as well is I take all my pictures horizontal because that's what the magazines really want, but then they had to be vertical or portrait for the cover. Right. So I will like, come I forgot to take the, uh, you know, four or five portrait pictures of, you know, the grip and grin kind of stuff. Um, and, and I was like, man, and I've had so many times they say, do you have a vertical copy of this? Cause we want, you know, this would look great on a cover. No, I don't. So I'm right. saying this to the listeners out there, whether you're using your iPhone or whether you're using, you know, a high end DSLR is take them landscape and, and portrait or horizontal and vertical, do them both. You know, take five pictures horizontal and take five pictures vertical, and and because uh, you don't you don't know which one's going to be the right one. Exactly, you're you you're 100 right. That I tell people that all the time. I I'm actually the opposite of you because I'm I consider myself more of a cover photographer. I can and see that's that. What I, yeah. That's what I'm known for in the industry is being one of the top cover photographers in the hunting industry. Mm-hmm. And so I actually shoot 75 percent of my photos in vertical format, up and mm-hmm. down portrait right. format. And only 25% horizontal. And there's a lot of times I wished I'd shot more horizontal when they're wanting to do a two-page spread inside the magazine. But I figured, okay, what is the photos that they're going to, you know, want the most? It's a cover, number one, which is vertical. And it's a full-page shot inside as an opener. And then they'll put the text on the next page over on the right-hand side. And that's vertical also. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so then the third one is the two page spread that some of the magazines, not all the magazines want to, you know, pay for a two page spread. And so they, that's a smaller percentage of shots. And so I shoot seven, I actually, at one point early on, I think I shot 90% vertical and 10% horizontal is how much I was so focused on getting covers, but that's why you probably don't get as many published of covers and stuff is because there's guys like me that, supply the photos that are just concentrating on photos on covers and we're out there just to get photos you're you're trying to write the article and the photos are kind of a secondary thing yeah that they're just to support what i'm talking about exactly and those work fine for the inside of the of the magazine uh support images but i'm going for like the the lead shots i'm going for the cover shots and so that's why you know like field and streaming outdoor life i've tried to write for them and they tell me you're either a photographer or a writer to us. We do right. not have our photographers write articles and we don't have our writers do cover shots. We have right. like two different groups. Not every magazine's like that. You know, know. Uh, most of the other national magazines aren't like that, but Field and Stream and Outdoor Life are m- very much 
more of elite type level of what right. they do because right. uh, they're the oldest in the business, 125 years in the and business. And you'll see that though. You'll see that with what I call the, the classy magazines and I can name right. some like uh sporting classics is one Covey rise is one the ducks unlimited, maybe one um, right. uh, pointing dog or gun dog rather, or maybe mm-hmm. some of the, what I call the classier magazines that are still very well done. Very excellent photography really good writing um and uh you'll see that where they actually have photographers that pay uh or they're maybe even on staff to go get the pictures for all of their all of their stuff but even our i just got our south Carolina wildlife magazine in the mail today and they used to have three full-time photographers on staff they don't have any they don't have any anymore none yeah all the writers have to provide all the photos uh, and it's like, cause Ted Borg was the one I remember the most who, the, he was like, he, he was the guy for getting Southern wildlife in all the Southern magazines. Um, and it's like, wow, do I really want to dive into this pool of learning photography to get to the high level? If I'm just, and I say just, but if I'm supplying pictures to support a story rather than sell a magazine because that's what the cover does. The cover shot sells the magazine. Right. And that's what people see. Uh, That's what they see. They, the cover shot sells the magazine. That's why they rely on people like you so that when you walk by and see it at the grocery store or at books a million, or it's really more like 400,000, but at books at 400,000 that grabs their eye and they, and they're going to go pay $6 for the magazine now. Right. Because, you know, that's sitting on the newsstand and that cover is the face of the magazine for that month. And, you know, just to show you how important that is to a magazine, like let's use the example of Field and Stream magazine. They, you know, back in their heyday, they, you know, they don't pay as much anymore because they've gone digital. But the cover for many, many years was $1,800 for a cover. Mm. And the same shot could be used inside. Mm -hmm. To, as a lead, as a full page vertical shot, right? That pays five hundred and fifty dollars, right? Okay, yeah, same a third, size, a third photo, same everything. It's you know over a third less. Yeah, and so that's how important that cover is because people see that they read the cover blurbs about what articles are inside, and they don't mm-hmm. have time to go you know leaf through the whole thing. They'll mm-hmm. see it and they'll say, okay, I want that one. Man, look at that cover shot. I'm gonna get that one. They they've got to have something yeah. cool inside. Yeah. And so that's how important the cover on a magazine is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the ones that I got, you know, now they don't even break their check down when they mail you the check. It doesn't say this much for the picture, this much for the story, but I know what they pay per word. Right. Mm-hmm. So I can do the simple math in my head where you publish. And most of them, they require six to 10 pictures to be sent in with my story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if they publish four of them and I know they're paying me $300 for the story, and I get a check for four fifty. Well, that wasn't but fifty dollars a picture. Well, right. that's not hardly worth that, right? You know, and 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 some of those may be a full page, like you say, a lead where I have the title and then the story starts on the other side. I got a full page, and you pay me fifty bucks for it. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm not a photographer; I'm a writer, and they just and that's that's how they're getting away with it because right. a lot of these magazines now require us writers to supply the pictures. Right? It's not it's not negotiable. If right. you wants to buy your story, then you got to supply six pictures. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, 
I've thought about sometimes like a writing a story on catching largemouth bass and sending in six deer pictures. Uh, I sent you six pictures. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I don't buy any of them. Just pay me for the story. <laughs> right. Right. But, oh my goodness. There's so much, so much Lance, so much. Uh, I said, well, we've been going to go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, that's why, you know, I quit doing the photo text packages because I could see that the prices they were willing to pay for them went down. Mm-hmm. And I, I told myself, okay, what do I enjoy doing the most? Do I enjoy writing or do I enjoy photographing? And for me personally, for Lance Kruger, I'm not saying this for you or anybody else. There's other guys that they enjoy the writing side of it. But to me, it was like writing a research paper, which yeah. I didn't, I didn't enjoy. I mean, it was work to me. I'm not a fast writer that can knock it out, you know, in a few hours. I, each article that I've written takes me at least two weeks to get that thing, you know, <laughs> and, you know, done right. Well, you lose money doing that. Yes, and so do. I told myself I'm much more efficient as a photographer. I enjoy being a photographer. <clears throat> and so I quit doing the photo text packages, but they were really, you know, instrumental in me starting out and getting my yeah. photos out there in the magazines. That was a right. good way for me to start out selling my photo pa- tech photo text packages to the magazines and you know they got a deal because they bought everything from me and i made more money than if i just had one photo published or something like that with right. another guy's article right. but now i've just concentrated on just you know the photography side but then even more than that nowadays you know the eyeballs have moved from magazines onto social media yeah. And so that there's that transition and the magazines are dying off They're They've got fewer pages. They're paying less for photos. They're paying less for articles. And it's really, you know, it's, it's hard to make it as a photographer or a writer. Hey everyone. I know if you're like me, you are a gear nut when it comes to your outdoor clothing. Uh, and we want to get the best clothes that we can that's going to last us for a long time. If I know I get tired of going to the big box store and having to buy a new, new camo every year because it fades or it shrinks and it's just, it just wears out. But Moosey Williamson is the founder and designer of Catch and Release Hunting Apparel, and he has been fighting that same issue. And he knows that camo and clothing are essential for a, a successful hunt. And as important as gear is, High-end camo is now almost a luxury. It's so expensive. You have to decide, am I going to buy a new camo outfit or am I going to buy a new rifle or a shotgun? Most hunters want good gear at an affordable price, and this is where Moosey and Catch and Release Camo is new to this space, but they're working hard to ensure that their clothing competes with the highest-end lines at a much, much lower cost. I tell you, I am really impressed with their fit and with their material and also just everything about it. I'm very impressed and proud to have them as a supporter of Christian Outdoors Podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to www.catchandrelease.us. And it's really so hard. It, yeah. it's really been coming down to like the last 10 to 15 years. I could see the slide downhill. Um, and so I started making the transition way late. It seemed like I'm a late bloomer in everything that I do. I went to digital late. I went to social media late and I started doing social media just a little over five years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I was doing Facebook, but I only would, you know, it was just like my personal Facebook page for friends and right, family. Right, right. And I would put on there my covers, you know, and stuff like that. 
But then five years ago, my wife told me, she said, you really need to get into the social media thing. There's this thing called Instagram that would be perfect for what you do with photos. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't even know what Instagram was. I had heard about it. Uh, I had to get my daughter, my, you know, daughter that was, you know, probably 16 years old at the time to help me post my first photo in September of 2017. And so I, I, I thought, you know, I might have my wife and my four kids follow me and that would be it. You know, I thought I'd have five <laughs> followers. And, you know, right now I'm over 67,000 followers on just Instagram. I've got wow. you know, between the, between that and LinkedIn. And I just started a TikTok, and, you know, which I'm not doing a whole lot on that yet because it's more video type content. I'm a still photographer still, but I've had to, um, you know, transit and, you know, make that transition over to where the eyeballs are going, where are the eyeballs right. they are looking at, you know, phones. And so between the, you know, social media accounts, I've got, you know, like almost 90,000 followers between my mm -hmm. different, uh, you know, accounts. I've got a right. Facebook business page now. That's not my family page. I don't really post much on my family page. I just do it, you know, on, you know, on my business account and mm -hmm. on my Instagram, uh, then LinkedIn, I, I post stuff on there, you know, I try to daily on that TikTok. I don't do much with that, but you know, anyway, I've got, you know, about 90,000 followers now. I had no idea. I thought it'd be the, you know, my five family members, you know? Right, right. And so anyway, so I'm, you know, and, and you look through history, you can look at, okay, where, where were the eyes and ears? Where were people paying attention back years ago? It used to be the radio, right? Then came TV. Well, yeah. Eyeballs went out and the ears went off of radio, even though a lot of people still listen to radio, you know, nowadays it has moved to TV and magazines. Okay. And then even TV is suffering compared to the internet. Uh, magazines are suffering because of the internet. And so things are actually kind of changing around because audio is getting to be a bigger and bigger thing because people are working on the computers and they can be having their earplugs in, you know, while they're, and, and listening to Christian Outdoors podcast. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And so they listen to a lot more podcasts. That's why podcasts have gotten to be such a big thing. Yep. It's because we're trying to multitask in our, you know, current, you know, lifestyle of working and trying to listen to something enjoyable yeah. while we're, yeah. you know, while we're working. And right. so it, everything is moved to where where are the eyeballs nowadays because I'm a visual type guy. Those eyeballs have moved from TV and magazines over to social media. And so mm -hmm. I wish I would have made the change over 10 years ago. I would be far ahead of where I am now with that. Right. Right. But, uh, I made the change and I've done pretty well in building a following. And so I'm, I'm in the process now of trying to figure out what are the things that I can do to replace the income that I lost from the magazines right. over the years. And so that's, that's kind of the place I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it is, it, it's, uh, like we've talked, I know we're, we sound like we're bemoaning the industry because we, I think we are a little bit of how it's changed so much. And not only with, I mean, because it doesn't make sense. You would think the supply and demand model would work as magazines go out of business. Other ones would pay more to stay in business, but that's not what happened as magazines have gone out of business. Then the other ones say, Hey, we don't have to compete for these top name guy now because they're looking for anywhere to sell their stuff so we can pay them a lot less um and i've told this story on here before is that you know i, th I think i may have said it earlier in this episode but 
you know, it's a 10th of what you get paid now from what you used to for magazines, uh, for a full feature, which is 1800 words, 15 to 2000. So 1800 words and six photographs pays, um, about a 10th of what it used to, uh, 20 years ago. And I just don't know. I don't know how, it, how the industry is going to survive continuing to pay you that little because as a writer, right? You're a photographer. I'm a writer. Okay. I care deeply about the craft of, of writing well and telling a good story and, and to captivate a reader and to move them emotionally and, and, and in their imagination to where I am. If I'm writing about hunting white-tailed deer in South Texas, I want them to, to feel those rocks under their feet and to see the, and to see the mesquite trees or bushes and, and to feel the, you know, feel what I'm feeling and to see what I'm seeing and to experience, I want to, I want them to experience it by telling a really good story. And, and that's important to me as a writer. Um, nobody buys that anymore. Okay. That's the stuff that captivated me, the Jack O'Connors and the, uh, um, guys, the name just flew out of my head, Ted Carasote from, uh, the old sports of field days and Gene Hill and, um, all those people, their stories is what, lured me into an outdoor lifestyle mm-hmm. my dad wasn't an outdoor man at all he was a golfer and sold insurance he didn't care anything about hunting and fishing they're reading their stories is what hooked me into it and i want to do that for somebody else and the sad thing is nobody buys it no no magazine wants those adventure and 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 exhilarating stories they want where to how to as shortly as briefly and as quickly as possible and um and i find that sad somewhat Except you notice we mentioned the elite magazines earlier, the grays and the sporting classes. They still do that, and they're still they're still profiting. I'm off my soapbox now. Well, I I also you know have kind of you know bemoaned the loss of the magazines. Not that they're all gone. I feel like there's always going to be some magazines around that still can make it profitable. There's mm-hmm. still magazines today that are still profitable. Uh, they're not killing it like they did back in the eighties, you know, back right, in the heyday right. of magazines and all that stuff. Uh, but I think there's always going to be magazines. There's always going to be people wanting to have a magazine to read on the toilet or whatever at hunting camp where they have no right. Wi-Fi or whatever. And so I think there'll always be magazines. Um, and so, you know, with me, I'm trying to, you know, move with the times. So what I'm doing is the current magazines that I already sell to, I'm still selling to those magazines that say, Hey, we get, we need these photos for so-and-so upcoming issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not chasing after the magazine market. Like I used to, there's a bunch right. of magazines out there that I used to sell to, or I, you know, or new magazines that I haven't sold to and, or new editors that, you know, because the old editor that I used to deal with, he, you know, doesn't work there anymore or retired or died yeah. or whatever the situation is. The editor I, leaves and you lose your connection to that magazine and then exactly. you're dead. You got to start exactly. over again. And yeah. so I'm not chasing after those, you know, markets that I used to have. Um, so what I'm taking that extra time that I've got in my schedule is I'm chasing after the social media side of things, trying okay. to uh, take that time that I used to spend on magazines and spend that time on trying to get, you know, my my following bigger, uh, and also offer more things that you know people can purchase from me. You know, right, one of the things right. I started doing, you know, four years ago, uh, after doing social media for a year, I had so many people asking, "Hey, do you have a calendar? Do you have prints? What do you have that we can buy from you? Do you have a book? 
you know, what, what can we buy from you? We love your stuff. What can we buy of your stuff? And I had people literally messaging me every day and commenting on my stuff. What can we buy from you? And so mm -hmm. I started doing a calendar about five years ago. And uh, then, you know, I started, you know, offering more print options. And so people can buy that. Another thing that I need to work on, uh, but again, it's, it's um, you know, the thing I don't enjoy as much, that is the writing side of it. And I need to do a book. But the thing is, I was like, man, do I want to write all those chapters and all that kind of stuff? But there was a, a photographer uh, named Rick Salmon, who's, you know, just a wildlife photographer in general, travel photography and stuff like that. Um, he gave me the idea of, he said that what he does, he's written 40 something books. And he said what he does is he will have a picture that he wants to talk about and he'll write a caption about it on that page. He'll put that caption on that page and then have another photo on the next page and write a short caption about that. He doesn't write chapters. Right. And yeah. So I started thinking, okay, here I've been writing, you know, all these captions on each of my photos. And I, I do what is called long form captions on my Instagram and Facebook posts which mm -hmm. is as long as many characters, I don't even know how many characters it is, 400 characters or whatever it is. I will almost fill that up with every one of my posts and basically teach people what is going on in the photograph, the story behind the photograph, the behavior in the photograph, talk about that behavior. Um, I'll give them hunting tips, you know, how I got up to this deer or how I figured out this deer. Um, and I'll give them photography tips of how I took the shot or whatever I want to tell about that story. And so when I, it was actually on a podcast that I heard Rick Salmon talking about how he does just a, you know, a caption on each photo on each page. I started thinking, you know what? I've been writing my book for the last five years. Yeah. All you gotta do is put it together. Yeah. All I gotta do is put it together. So that is something yeah. I'm hoping will happen this year, but there's you know, a, and that's interesting. And I will say this, and I've said this at seminars I've done for, for outdoor writers is just what you said. You have your book right now. My Turkey book that I published in 2019, that was the uh, outdoor book of the year uh, from Siopa was 15 years of stories I'd written for magazines about Turkey hunting. And I pulled all my favorite ones together and created a 12 chapter book. Now, I did polish them a little bit. I did update them a little bit, but the 90% of it was already done. I just compiled it and made it so that this chapter flows with this chapter, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and then I went and pulled my pictures together uh, and did it. But uh, I got so many books started like that, that there again, there's, you know, I even tried when my children were in college and they were looking for money. I said, this is what I want you to do. Go through my computer and find all the whitetail rut stories that I've written and put them in a folder. Find all the preseason stories I've written and put it in a folder. Find all the, you know, hunting scrape lines and put it in a folder. Because what has not been said about hunting whitetail deer, right? Everything's been said 5,000 times or more. So it's just Pete says it differently than what Lance would say it. And, and so trying to get them to do that anyway, and I got a, a, a probably about – 70% of it done is to say, now, now if I wanted to do another book on hunting whitetail deer, as an example, I already have the material. All yeah. I got to do is put it together and then go through and polish it, maybe update a little bit, change a, change a little bit here and there, but the bulk of the work is done. Um, and uh, um, I think all, all writers uh, are that way when they 
when, when it comes to it. And uh, I'm going to think of his name. Give me a second. Phillips is his last name. Oh, John Alabama. Phillips? Yeah, John Phillips. Bubba? Um, yeah, Bubba. He's probably, I think he's over 80 books, and that's how he's put them all together is by just compiling all of his stories by doing yep. that. Uh, he's a character. He really he is. He's a character. Yeah, he's a friend yes. of mine, another yeah. Christian also. So. Yes, no unpublished thought. I'll right. give him that. I'll <laughs> give him that. Yep. Uh, we need to transition, Lance. We can keep, we were an hour and 12 minutes into it. We hadn't even gotten to your, uh, into the fate side of this, which is also very important because Lance, Kruger is not only one of the world's best wildlife photographers, he's also a dedicated follower of Christ. And, and that's something that, that we're eager to talk about, as you know, here at Christian Outdoors. That's, that is our, our goal, to talk about the outdoors and to, and to get people like yourself on here to share their knowledge and experience, but also to share their faith journey. So, Lance, if you would, take a few minutes and, uh, and, and tell us what your faith journey means to you. Well, it's, it's a big part of the reason why I feel like I'm a success with what I've done, because I've, I've always asked God to use me in whatever he wants me to do. I, I wondered at, you know, one time, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, if, you know, he wanted me to be a, you know, what did he want me to do? What's your will for my life, God? And I, I'd ask him, do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to be a missionary? you know, what do you want me to do? I mean, what level do you want me to be a supporter, you know, in the church? And so, you know, I actually went to Russia on a missions trip back when I was uh, like 21, 20, 21 years old, something like that. And, um, you know, I, that, that specific missions trip was me trying to find out, do I want to be a missionary? Do I, what do I want to do with my life? I thought I Mm -hmm. wanted to be a wildlife photographer. I was thinking at the time also, Maybe I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, like I mentioned before, you know, but whatever I did, I wanted to be in the center of God's will because I knew that would be the only place that I would live a happy life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, you know, did that at that stage and I found out on that trip, I, I don't think I should be a missionary and um, you know, nothing bad about that. Nothing wrong with that. That just wasn't what I felt like God had me going in the direction that I'm, I'm supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, so anyway, I, you know, had been raised in a Christian home my whole life. You know, I, I don't have one of these dynamic, you know, Christian lives that, a, you know, a pastor has or something like that. I, I don't push Christianity to a lot of my followers. I will share occasionally about, you know, what God's done for me on my posts. Um, I'll, I'll put scriptures in there. I'll put scriptures on my, I'm not one of those big outspoken kind of Christians. I'm, I'm kind of a introvert. That's why I like being behind the camera stuck in a, you know, dark blind. Uh, I don't like to be in front of the camera. Uh, that's why I was really glad when you said, you know, I wasn't going to be on, on video. I was just going to mm-hmm. be on audio. Uh, cause I'm kind of a behind the scenes kind of guy, I guess you could say. But what I do is I do friendship evangelism. You know, I get to know people and, you know, get to be friends with them. And I feel like when they can trust you and they, they, you know, may not at the very first moment know that you're a Christian because they might not have wanted to be friends with you in the first place. And then, you know, they see, hey, you go to church and all this kind of stuff. Um, You know, they get to know you as a friend. And then when they're going through life's difficulties, they know that you've got the answers. And so they call me or come by my house and say, hey, I'm going through this. What do you think? They're not saying, hey, what do you think God would say about this? They say, what do you think? 
Mm-hmm. And so I'll guide them and, and lead them in what the Bible says. I won't tell them what I, I think. I tell them what the word of God says, you know, because that's the standard for my life. And so, you know, I, I just basically, you know, I'm a kind of a behind the scenes kind of guy, I guess you could say, um, and get to be friends with people. Like, you know, one of the guys that was uh, back when I was in my 20s, um, he, you know, I guided with this guy up in Michigan. He was from Michigan and we guided at this, you know, property up in Michigan for whitetails. And um, he and I got to be friends and he would notice that on Wednesday nights, you know, during the fall, it was early enough that I could, you know, get over to, to this little church that was, you know, that I'd found out about. Uh, you know, I'm from Texas. This was Michigan. I had to look in the yellow pages at the time. This is in the <laughs> mid nineties and find out where this church was. And I had to call them and find out when their services were. And I would go on Wednesday nights. I couldn't go on Sunday mornings because I was, you know, working Sunday mornings, but I would go Wednesday nights when I could. And so he would see me doing that. And he started saying, Hey, I need to go to church with you sometime. You know, I was like, Hey, come on, let's go. Well, he never would go to church with me. You know, when it came down to it, he'd, he'd you know, make excuses and stuff. Right. Right. And, uh, then um, probably he and I were friends for like five years. This is like the late nineties by then. <clears throat> and um, he was going through a divorce and he called me up and he said, Hey Lance, this is what's going on. We started talking. And by the end of that conversation, it was probably an hour or two hour long conversation. Um, I was able to lead him to, you know, lead him to the, you know, Christ on the phone. You know, he was in Michigan. I was in Texas. It was during the summertime. And so that friendship evangelism, I, I feel like on these ranches, there's like an unreached people group on Mm -hmm. these, on these ranches because they're self-sufficient. They, you know, a lot of these ranchers, they don't even need to leave their ranch. They got servants and all kinds of stuff. And so I feel like God has placed me on these properties to be able to reach people that would not normally go to church, but God's kind of sending me to these places and I'm not, you know, right up front, you know, Hey, I'm a Christian, you know, I just get to know them. They get to see that I'm, I'm a nice guy. You know, I, you know, I'm easy going. And then they get to know more about me over the months and years that, you know, we get to be friends. And so that's how, you know, when they're going through something or they have questions, you know, even if they're not going through something, they just are interested in, you know, what does God think about this or that or whatever, you know, I'll tell them, but I'm, I'm not out there, you know, preaching at them, shoving it down their throat kind of thing. I'm just kind of just telling them what my experience has been. Right. Right. So, I love that phrase, friendship evangelism. I wrote it down by the way, okay. you said it. I'd never heard that phrase, but I love that phrase. And with your permission, I may use that a good bit going yes, forward. Please, uh, please. That is a great, that's a great line, especially for, you know, people, um, I, I consider you said that you were introverted, right? I consider myself an outgoing introvert, which right. means I can do it, but it exhausts me to be extroverted. Like, like when you have to go to the trade shows and you got to go shake hands and meet everybody all day long. When I get to the hotel, I just crash. I am emotionally drained. Right. Got, uh, but I can be by myself for days, not even speak to another soul and be just fine. Exactly. Um, so, so I, I like my outgoing introvert. I can do it, but I, it's just, it takes a lot. That's right. where podcasting is really good for Pete because I'm behind the microphone. Right. I can share a message that I care about. I can, I can be with people and, and it, and it just works. And when I'm, when I do a speaking event, then 
I'm only in that environment for a brief period of time. And I love, I love public speaking. I love speaking in person and seeing the reaction of people and all that. I really do. Uh, and I think that's one of the gifts that God gave me is, is being able to do that. However, from a, from a psychological, emotional standpoint, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's like 20 minutes or a, uh, my keynotes are about 45 minutes to an hour. I feel like I've just, you know, worked 10 hours that day because of the emotional drain that it is. Uh, right. Having said that, I love this idea of friendship evangelism. And, and I think putting that name on it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this for a little bit here, Lance. Putting that name on it makes things a lot clearer for me. And I think some of our listeners as well to say that um, you don't have to be a flamboyant person with your faith in order to make a difference in somebody's life. You can build that relationship and, 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 and be friends with them. And, you know, it kind of parallels what we've talked about a lot here today about the outdoor industry in the, in the, in the publication world is it's all relationship based, right? And as you build those relationships, you build trust. And as you build trust, then you get a little more comfortable sharing more of yourself. And as Christians, um, that is primarily who we are. We're Christians first and outdoor people second. Um, you know, it's, it's God, spouse, family, job, you know, so that's way down the line. And by building these relationships, then that should be the people we care about the most and the ones that we want to help the most. Uh, um, and uh, anyway, that, that's very well said. Very well said. Thank you for sharing that, Lance. Uh, we've kept on here a long time and really need to wrap this up in and it'll be an hour and a half by the time I get through editing everything and putting in some other stuff, but it's been great. I really appreciate you doing it. Tell the listeners how they can follow you on all these social media outlets and, and how to get to your website. Uh, my website is www.lance-kruger.com. Uh, the little yeah. line from left to right, whatever. Is that a, called a hyphen? You're the writer. So yeah, if it's in the middle, it's a hyphen. If it's underlined, yeah. 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 So it's a hyphen, uh, Lance hyphen Kruger, K R U E G E R.com. Uh, they okay. can just do a go- Google search and find most of my stuff, my website and whatever. But right. uh, the main page that I post to every day is Instagram and Facebook. Instagram is at Lance underscore Kruger. L-A-N-C-E underscore K-R-U-E-G-E-R. And then on uh, Facebook, it's Lance Kruger Photography. Okay. Um, and uh, then on TikTok, I think it's Lance.Kruger. Uh, but I don't post on TikTok very much. But one of the things that I'm in transition, and I know TikTok is blowing up, um, I'm one of the things that I'm starting to do is instead of just being a still photographer for the last 35 years, this year, I'm starting to gear up and change my equipment so that I can do still photos and video and be able to switch back and forth with the new mirrorless cameras. Next thing, you'll be handling snakes. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> nope. The heresy the heresy coming from a photographer's mouth that he's going video. Tell me about it. Tell me yeah. about it. But it's the trends. And you either, I think John you know, would be rebuking you right now. for so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's one of those things where you either, you know, make you the changes or you get or left you behind die. you become yeah. irrelevant you know yeah you either adapt or you get left behind you get, exactly. I mean, that's just the way it is and and uh you know i don't do tiktok um but i do you mentioned linkedin has been always been my my favorite place to to do social media mm-hmm. i have I don't know, 10 times the followers on linkedin than i do on everywhere else 
uh, probably because I started it earlier and I've been on there now for, I don't, I don't, I don't have near as many as you do, but it's in the, you know, in the, um, six, six digits, high six digits. So, um, it's, uh, it's a lot, uh, and transitioning that over to social to the uh, Instagram and, and Facebook has been a struggle for me. Um, we're probably about the same age. So it's, it's, it's been a struggle. That's why I hired a social media manager to help me with all that because I absolutely stink at it and he is doing a phenomenal job. Hmm. Um, anyway, Lance Kruger, man, it's been a, it's been a privilege to be able to spend this much time talking with you. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for, for decades. Um, as an outdoor rider, seeing your stuff, I think, man, I, he has got a gift. And you do. You, you have a gift for what you do. You're, you're very, very good at it. And, I, and I'm humbled and honored that you took the time to spend this kind of time with me to talk about your craft and to talk about your faith. And thank you for joining me here at Christian Outdoors. Well, thanks for having me, Pete. I've really enjoyed it. And i um, so glad we were able to get together and spend some time together and and I felt like it was just a couple old uh, hunting buddies, uh, outdoor writer, photographer buddies, uh, sitting around a campfire, just shooting the breeze and just yeah, having absolutely. a good time and, and fellowshipping. So thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to hang out with you for a little bit. It's great to have met you here and maybe one day we'll be able to meet in person and, you know, who knows, maybe in a hunting camp somewhere. That would be great, Lance. That would be great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>